Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. This is Yom Shavu'i Shel Pesach, or the seventh day of Passover. And we've gone through some readings here in Exodus 13 through 15, and also in Numbers 28, picking up some of the offerings that are discussed on this particular day. And we also picked up a very interesting reflection there in 2 Samuel chapter 22, reflection on the Red Sea crossing. And in Luke chapter 24, uh, we picked up the conclusion of what we've been going through in uh, piece by piece on the, uh, the death and burial and resurrection of Yeshua. And then we picked up there in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, is a reflection the Apostle Paul is making upon the Red Sea crossing and the lessons that it has for us here today. Now, one of the things that we look at in the particular of uh, starting first off with this uh, passage here in Exodus chapter 13 and going through 15 is the Red Sea crossing. And we saw that, there, that they were traveling day and night and day and night. And um, you, uh, the tradition has it that you have this correspondence of the last day of the seven days of unleavened bread corresponding to the time of the crossing of the Red Sea. And you can see with some of the reflections upon the, um, the time that they were traveling, that they were traveling day and night and day and night, and that the cloud was over them, that you could say, well, there could be some correspondence there with the, the last day of Passover. And especially when you see the themes involved with the crossing of the sea are a number of the themes involved with the Passover. And you see that the Apostle Paul reflects on that. Um, when we were during Shabbat, we talked about First Corinthians chapter 5, and there is a clear correlation there and connecting in with unleavened bread as a lesson for that particular congregation there in Corinth. So just later on in the same letter, you have another reflection this time of the Red Sea crossing, also another lesson for the people in the congregation of Corinth. We'll be talking about that passage a little bit later. But this particular passage there through the Red Sea is this key moment of the passage from the house of bondage there in Mitzrayim in Egypt to the land of freedom. We call it the promised land, the land of rest, as you see it referred to in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 and also in Psalm 95. It's referred to as uh, the Lord's rest. He says, enter my rest. You shall not enter my rest, saying to that generation of people who did not want to trust the Lord to face up against the giants, the giant walls that were there in the land of Canaan, that the people were too big for them, the walls too high. It was too much of a... Thing for them to take on, too much of a task, too much of an enemy for them to take on. But one of the things that we see in the sea is that who is fighting for them? Did the people of Israel open up the sea? No, not by a long shot. In fact, in previous times that we've gone, gone through, this particular passage, and we've looked at what the peoples of the nations, what they thought of the powers of the sea, and that in the land of Canaan, where they were going, there was a popular, um, popular literature called, you know, the Baal cycle, and that 
was talking about a battle between Baal and uh, Yom and the force of the sea and how there was a bit of, as it's called in Eastern cultures, a yin and a yang. There was a balance between Baal and Yom and they fought each other and there ended up being a detente between them. But what you see in the account of Israel coming out is not that way at all. The Lord says, the sea is going to open. And it's talked about a blast of his nostrils, and the sea opens. There's no battle. There's no negotiation. There's no, uh, let's see if we can you know, reach some sort of a, a compromise or diplomacy here. There is like the power of the sea from the one who created the earth and the sea and everything in them and on them. He said, move, and the water moved. Uh, yes, Sean, you have a no, I just thought it was really beautiful, too. It was, it was be silent and watch what I'm yes. about to do. Be I mean, silent. Stand by. Yeah, just, you know, you don't need to go grabbing your Bible and say, check it out, the Lord is doing this. And just be <laughs> silent and let him do his thing. Okay. Yeah, indeed. So some of the things, and uh, just in a bit of a reflection back on where we've covered this before, when we go through the Torah cycle just uh, a few weeks ago, where we went through this passage before, and some particular highlights that will go through the entire journey from when Israel leaves the house of bondage and when they get to the land. And again, this is not ancient history. This is not something we're looking about to people long, long ago, because as we'll get to the passage that the Apostle Paul recounts in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what was going on with them going out of the house of bondage through the sea into the land encountering these things along the way that was meant for whom us the people of later generations who would come the people of paul's generation the people of corinth who he was writing to it was for them and then it was also for us for all the generations that would come along because this is not just a journey of an ancient people long ago that are long dead, that are irrelevant to us. No, this is highly relevant to us because the death, burial, and resurrection of the key Savior is wrapped up in and very much an important part of Passover and the account this is something that you see showing up a lot in not only in the Hebrew Bible, but also in the apostolic writings as well. It's an ancient form of argumentation, or you could say explanation, called kalvachomer. And as we talked about before, that just means in Hebrew, light and heavy. And the case and the accounts that you have in Exodus is the light. The thing that is on the lighter form is it inconsequential no but light and heavy means if that is the light side there must be something even more important that this is pointing to on the other side so this account that you have in exodus of an ancient people long dead how much more then is what is happening with the passover the true Passover lamb, or as the apostle, <laughs> the apostle and prophet, Yochanan, one baptizing down at the Arden, the Jordan, saying, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is the how much more part. If this happened there in Mitzrayim, how much more then is what Yeshua is doing and those that will trust in him and follow him in the leading out of the house of bondage. As we explain every time in this, this season, we all have our house of bondage. And one of the things we see when we go through all the plagues of Egypt, what were the plagues for? Who was the battle mainly against? The gods of Mitzrayim. The gods that were the powers that were over that house of bondage. 
that was driving this particular situation. Because it says there in the word that that the Lord was hardening Paro's heart. And you see the different words that are used in the account of hardening the heart, of both to solidify into a position and then also defensive into a position. So those going back and forth of getting defensive about your position being attacked and then, as we say, digging in your heels into that position. So that's one of those things that we always have to be concerned about. We, we have the big 50-cent term here today. We call it confirmation bias, meaning that you will not see or listen to anything that challenges what you hold to. So that's one of those things when it talks about in Proverbs that one man's, one man's words sound great until the second man comes and answers to it. Another way that that's put also in Proverbs is iron sharpening iron together. That you are both, you know, honing. You know that you always you always uh, think uh, one of the great things about watching the the cooking shows is you actually find out what the stuff is that you're you're actually using and what it's actually for. You know that big round thing that you see in your usual knife sets, and you're thinking, oh, that's how you sharpen your knives. That's not how you sharpen the knives. What's that thing actually for? Straighten the blade. For every time the nicks get in there and the thing gets out of whack and stuff, that thing is to straighten the blade. So when it talks about iron sharpening iron, it is to make your blade true back to the way it was supposed to go. So you sharpen it, great. But to actually get it back into shape, yes. That is what those things, when we get the um, come and reason together, thus we get moved back to a place where we should go to challenge the things that we might hold dear. We might, as we go through and explore it, say, yes, that is the correct way to go. Or we can say, as we get challenged, maybe that's not the right way we should be going. So that is a part of what's the, the exodus out of the house of bondage is all about. It is to take us out from the stronghold of where we were before, the things that were holding us in, the things that we may hold dear, the things that we think that we cannot live without but indeed are holding us back from really seeing what the kingdom of God is actually revealing. And takes us back to the garden, tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and bad. There's a lot of hanging out at the tree of knowledge of good and bad that has been going on in the world. It's not a new thing. It may seem like a new thing, but... The world goes through these cycles of dallying with the tree of good and bad and that knowledge. So thus, when we are coming out of our house of bondage, one of the key questions that we ask, is God with us or not? And we saw that in the passage that we just read there in Exodus. Is God with us or not? When we encounter some sort of hardships. We come out of our house of bondage and we have hardships. Our, our force is, the force that held us before is pursuing us. Our old life wants it back. It wants to still control us. Yes, not today. So like one of the things as we continue to go through the book of Romans, we're... I, going through chapter 6 and and our last study we were looking at this and one of the key things that we all have to come to and understand is number one that you are free from your old life 
And number two, that what happened with your old life, you've been declared not guilty in heaven's eyes for that. That the blood of the Messiah is sufficient to say, yes, that was horrendously bad, but that has been covered. Now walk in a new life. Because one of the promises that we go back to in the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, it's, I will forgive your iniquities. Forgive means what? To send away. And I will remember them no more. So thus, when you see this in the apostolic writings about being justified, that is a whole part of heaven saying, we remember that old way of life no more. The things that happened, yes, bad. Don't go that way again. We don't want to go that way again to go back to that old way of life. That old way of life does not have dominion over us anymore. So the secondary questions that say, okay, is God with us or not? Is this journey, are we just left to our own, um, our own devices? Are we going to open our own Red Sea, so to speak, so that the, the old way of life that was pursuing us won't get us? Or is it up to us to open that Red Sea that the forces of our old life won't pursue us and overtake us? So when we go out of it, one of the things that Israel encountered, and as we go through and we see in Exodus, and then we go back and pick up the account again in the book of Numbers, you see the challenge that comes from leaving your old way of life. You want to go back. You feel the pull of it to go back. One of the lessons that comes in the festival of unleavened bread, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is to do what? Purge out the old leaven. And that was, he was speaking specifically in the context of a type of leaven that was accepting of the things that heaven is saying, no, you know, that, that, that way of life, that's what you're leaving. You don't just bring that in to the family of God in with that. That becomes malice and wickedness. That is part of what purged out. And what do you, does the Apostle Paul say that you bring in? That the unleavened part of that is sincerity, transparency, and truth. And that truth that comes in is, goes right back to not only the Garden of Eden, but the Tree of Life. That's the way of truth. Because as we said when we were going through there in that particular passage in Genesis, is that you can look at the, the, this as being a buffet in life. You go into the garden, and is it a buffet? You can just put on your plate from the Tree of Life and then put on your plate the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. But really what you see, it's not a buffet at all. It is an either or. The tree of life is really like the tree of true and false. Because to eat from that particular tree is to then exclude the other options that are there. And also, when the other questions that you ask as we all go through this journey, going out from the house of bondage to where we are going into the land of rest, is our destination. Our destination is to enter his rest, as it mentions there in Hebrews 3 and 4. That pictured the light part of it, of the light and heavy part, is pictured with ancient Israel crossing over the Jordan 
into the land, into the promised land. Each one of us, then, we go out of our own Egypt, we cross through our own Red Sea, we go to the mountain, and then we go and we cross over and go into the land. And one of the key lessons in that is from the process from Egypt to the promised land, our old way of life that was in Egypt has to die in the wilderness. And we are reborn as a new generation that crosses the Jordan and goes into the land. So our destination is the land of rest. And as you see the picture there, that the Messiah is that way into rest, into the kingdom. We see it recorded in the Gospels that says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you what? More regulations? Or give you rest? The old way of life, land in, back in Egypt, that's gone. You don't have to worry about that or be plagued by that anymore. That old way of life is gone. So then, one of the accounts that we have in this time period of the journey to the mountain and then into the land is a part of what that journey to the mountain is part of the account of where we see the time period from Passover, the original departure from Egypt, and arrival at Sinai. And the arrival at Sinai is right around that time of Shavuot or Pentecost, there when you talk about that particular time period. Now, by, by tradition, they say, yes, that Pentecost, Shavuot, is that day where they are arriving at the mountain. And, you know, as you work it out, there are people who quibble back and forth, whatever, it is within the same week of the arrival of it. You can quibble about a days here or there, but you're seeing the delivery of the people to the mountain is in connection with this later celebration of Passover, or Passover, first fruits, and then the 50 days leading up to Pentecost. They are connected together. So thus, your departure from Egypt is connected to your arrival at the mountain. And one of the key lessons that we go through each year about this, this delivery to the mountain is that just like what we see, and you see it in the book of Romans and you see it in other parts of Scripture, is that was Abraham circumcised before or after he had trust in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Was it before or after? After. Yes. And that circumcision is a sign of what? Sign of the covenant, entering into the covenant. A sign that, as it, we read in our last passage there from the book of Joshua, that it is a sign of the rolling back when they had the, the second generation entering the land circumcised. It was about rolling back the reproach of Egypt. Basically, you are going to remove that part of yourselves that was connected back to Egypt. So with this, of leaving your old way of life, you were delivered out. And then you were delivered to the mountain where you encounter, you have a direct encounter with the Lord. And as we mentioned in our last meeting there on, on uh, Shabbat, we saw the passage where the, the tablets of stone are called the tablets of the testimony. The, the tabernacle is called the tent of the testimony also called the Tent of Meeting, but also called the Tent of the Testimony. So, 
what we see then is then the encounter at the mountain becomes the place where the Lord is now traveling with the people. Met the people on the mountain Sinai, then his presence goes with them in the midst of them with the tabernacle. So you go to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and you encounter what his testimony is, delivered on the ten words, the ten commandments, delivered on the tablets of stone. That is the heart of the testimony. But then you see that Moses was up there for 40 days the first time, and then went up for another 40 days. I have to, go, I have to get the second, the duplicate set of the, or you could say the replacement set of the tablets of the testimony. And you see the other things that were revealed to Moshe while he was up on the mountain, the pattern for the tabernacle, the pattern for this tent of the testimony, where the tablets of the testimony would be in the ark of the testimony and then into the tent of the testimony, the tent of meeting. So it's a, it's a thing where you see that do you have to have it all together, so to speak, before you get delivered? One of the things you see with the pattern of Egypt is they cried out for help. The Lord then delivered out of Egypt. Take them to the mountain. Then you find out what the Lord is really like. Yes, uh, Alex. Kind of had to go in order. If he took them right to paradise, gave them the land, and then said, oh, by the way, there are some rules here. They'd be like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, we'll get into that later. No, yes. No. We had to do that first. Yes. <laughs> what do they have that, that uh, long um, Latin term for it, uh, ipso post facto? You know, where you, yeah, <laughs> where, where you, you, you basically make people liable for things before they even know that they exist. Uh, you're like, wait a minute, where'd that come from? Uh, and then you just say that you, you make requirements after the fact. That's a, a, that's a key point of what the Apostle Paul's argument about circumcision and um, faith and righteousness is all about, is that you have the delivery first, the trusting first. Then you have, okay, this is who the Lord is. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. And then you're saying, yes, I want to be in covenant with this one. Uh, yes, uh, go ahead, Sean. Just, it, this just warms my heart more than ever just because of recent events in my life, how his love and mercy and grace, because we know that his children for 400 plus years are dealing with these disembodied enemies against God influencing them conditioning when when uh, one of the pharisees uh, told uh, one of the people that got blind you were raised in, or uh, born in sin and shaped into iniquity i mean i it, that didn't quite click for me until like i said some recent events i mean we're born amongst these little elohims that are at war with our creator constantly just yeah he, he sees that and he says i'm still I'm going to pull you, wipe you clean, get you off of those spirits, reveal you to me, now abide here. Mm. Yeah. And that's, you know, when the Apostle Paul talks about we battle the principalities of the air, that is something to always keep into consideration. As we've only seen small little glimpses of these things in Scripture, where you have the revelation that there are certain you know, powers that try to make something of themselves against God that seem to linger in certain areas of the world. You see like in the book of Daniel where the, uh, one of the archangels then has to go and battle with the, called the, the prince of Persia, the particular principality of the air that was trying to do battle there in that particular area. And you see that these things continue, whether from one kingdom to the next kingdom to the next kingdom. <laughs> yeah, same as it ever was. It's something that continues over time. So the same problems 
come out of the same areas time after time. Yes. So thus when we see in the book of Revelation where you have a confrontation, confrontation between the career of heaven and earth and the powers of the adversary that are continually at war and continually trying to, um, trying to convince people to go the other direction. This battle is one that you could say is foolish because this is not Zoroastrianism. There is not a yin and the yang here. Just like with the sea, when the creator of the sea says, open, it opens. And thus, in Revelation, you see that when the forces that are against the kingdom of God try to assault the kingdom of God, what happens? They lose. And it's one of those things that's a bit sobering from the book of Ecclesiastes. And it, you see the re reflection there where it's saying, well, it seems like the evil man, and he beats down the innocent man, and he wins. And you think, that's the better way to go. But in the end, it isn't the better way to go. Because just like a bully, just like a dictator, just like any other oppressive force, there is always what? The bigger dictator, the bigger force, the bigger bully that comes in and beats them down and takes them over. So the way of the violent, it seems like it works for a while until something worse comes along. But eventually, in the end, the bullies come up against the creator of heaven and earth, and the creator's just going to say, enough of this. You've had your way with this for far too long. It's now come to an end. Uh, yes, Damon, please go ahead. A big lesson to see with the character of us as humans, when, when Moshe went up to the mountain for 40 days, look at how easily the people got influenced, and, and I'm going to call it the gods of Abal and Estar and Moloch came in, yeah. and, and the people quickly, you know, 23,000 went into, uh, into uh, you know, orgies and, and, and debauchery and so on and so forth as soon as Moshe was gone for just, you know, a, a short period of time. And we have to be very in, in, in tune with knowing God has not abandoned us, that he is with us, and we have to, to, to be strong to fight the battle of these other gods, so to speak. Um, you know, that's a constant lesson throughout human history. But yeah, look at how easily the Israelites drifted away. It's, yeah, it's, and that's, you bring up a very interesting point, because there at that point, they were bolting on the practices of the nations around them, and then just basically trying to import their, you know, the creator, the God of Israel, into this mold and just fill it in. But it is not something that you can just import into it. It is something that is completely anathema to it. Because, you know, one of the accounts that we have of being able to call upon the power of the Lord is to know that you are calling upon the superior force. I you often hear um, like some playwrights and um, script writers talk about, well, how do you depict, you know, for like um, Christian themes, Christian godly themes in this? Because if you were to depict these things, it doesn't make, you could say, for exciting drama. Because what, what is one of the things about exciting drama is the potential for disaster, potential for your hero to lose. You know, it's like if you are playing a game and someone has all the, quote, cheat codes, is that, quote, fun? Well, for a little bit, but there's no, there's no competition in that. You can just 
wipe the board because you have all the power. So someone says, hey, this is not an interesting sort of thing because the creator of heaven and earth has all the power over all of the dominion of everything. They answer to him. We see these little snippets of it, like in the, in the book of Job, where they're coming to visit, and the adversary comes into the council and is asking for permission. Can I do this to Job? And you see the other examples there in the writings and the prophets where these unclean spirits, as they're referred to, are basically sent into the people of Israel. And you could say in similar way to why Yeshua was telling parables. It's like, well, you want to believe something else? I'll give you all the reason to believe something else. And you can decide which one you're going to go with. But it, it is kind of interesting that in, in one of those cases where you, you have an, a prophet sent to a king and he starts telling him what the king wants to hear. And he's like, wait a minute, this can't be the right prophet because he wouldn't be telling me what I want to hear. And the prophet says, okay, well, here's the real deal. Uh, you realize now that I'm not just going to give you the sugar-coated message. Here is what heaven's actually saying to you. You're not going to like it, but this is what heaven is actually saying to you. Yes, uh, Sean, go ahead, please. I'm just saying, I mean, most of us can identify with this. There's a great comfortability and familiarity. Yes. Right? I mean, Even if it's misery. Exactly. Especially some of us have endured mental, physical, all kinds of uh, abuse, but it's what we knew. Yes. Now, when you've got these disembodied gods that know that are very, very student, uh, studious about our flesh, they know how to whisper a thought and to guide our eyes to a certain area and know what it's going to do biologically to us. Yes. I don't know how many times, man, somebody with a low cut, this and that and the other thing, and I wasn't guarding my focus, and all of a sudden, it's a trap. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I get hooked in. And so it. Yeah, it, it's sad that they all had to go down, but uh, they, but that was the example that Paul tells us that this is what's going to happen if we yes. lie in bed with it. Yeah, indeed. So in one of the uh, passages that we look at here about the um, parting of the sea, and one of the characteristics we see in the parable of the sower which it's recorded there in matthew 13 and mark chapter 4 and luke chapter 8 very important parable showing up in so many places that yeshua is describing people who would gladly receive the message of the kingdom you know gladly go out of mitzrayim gladly leave the house of bondage but then you see in the parable of the sower that one of the types of soil that the seeds fall upon is ground that has thorns in it, ground that has very shallow topsoil in it. It can't grow down that far. So then the thorns of this life, the cares, persecution, etc., they choke it out. And when you're in competition with it, one of the things that you see, like the Apostle Yaakov there in James chapter 1, he says, hey, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And what should you be praying for? Wisdom. Why is this happening? How do I persevere through this? How do I persevere and then mature and become complete, become tamim? How when we face these things going on, do we pray for wisdom to say, what can I learn from this? How can I grow? How can I persevere through this to go out the other side? Because that is when we say becoming mature and complete, that's not, <laughs> when, it, when, it, when it talks about you become perfect, the word that it actually goes back to is more in the realm of, you see it in the Hebrew scriptures called tamim, or becoming complete. Uh, like it's referred to in the same way that Yaakov 
was called a complete man, a tamim man. And also, the offerings that are brought in, they must be complete. And you see that they, they can't have any sort of blemishes on them, injuries, etc. Because what are they picturing? They are picturing the ultimate the ultimate offering, the ultimate korban, the ultimate thing that is going to approach and take us into the presence of the Lord. So that one that is going to take us into the presence of the Lord is going to be complete. Not, as some people might say, more relevant to the world. Having more understanding of the world has been faced all the foibles, fallen like everybody else. Um, it's called, in various ways, Rasputinism uh, in more modern times with the Waco thing called Koreshism, where you, they were falsely saying that you need a savior who actually has fallen and wallowed in the muck and the mire of the world to truly understand you. So that is just a complete anathema against what Scripture actually says, revealed in like the letter to Hebrews, that we have a high priest who has suffered all things, yet did not sin. And sin, as revealed you know, through the Word, is basically just turning away from God. Because repenting is doing what? You're turned away from God, you leave that path, and you turn back. You turn around. You turn back. You run, yes. So, you know, it's revealed there as we come up to the time of um, Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement about sin, transgressions, and iniquity. Where sin, you miss the mark. You may be aiming for it, but you fail transgressions, you're getting more willful and you're leaving the paths of God. Iniquity, you're almost 180 degrees different. In a sense, we call that treason toward the kingdom of God. But <laughs> praise be to God that when he says, I will forgive your iniquities and remember them no more. The golden calf is that's about as iniquitous as you could possibly get to be sitting at the base of the mountain of God where the presence of God is and worshiping, giving allegiance to something that is completely different from how the, the kingdom of God is revealed. Uh, yes, Alex. I was wondering about the golden calf. Well, that's beef. <laughs> <laughs> they really wanted some meat out there, you know, <laughs> and that's the whole thing about the mm. idols and false gods. It's all very humanistic. Mm. They, you know, well, in this town, they got this God mm. and yay, the Greeks are coming to town. The Phoenicians, they say, well, these, these guys are doing pretty good. We can shift to their God. So much the opposite of Yahweh. The same forever. Yeah. Haven't changed. But this is all very malleable otherwise. <laughs> very humanistic. <laughs> yes, and can be pretty much whatever you want to make of it. Uh, yes, uh, Piran. Well, it makes me think of the other gods. They didn't know how to please them. There was mm. no instruction for how to keep them from being angry. So they devised roofs with hooks to catch the evil spirits. And they were always in fear. Yeah. Of their gods. Yeah, and all kinds of uh, <laughs> varying approaches. Uh, you better make sure that you're on the good side of the priesthood of any given deity. Because uh, as you see in many powers, they wielded most of the power that was in there. Yeah, you didn't know how to be on the good side. Um, but, I mean, you see even in uh, some of the writings that we have from the Babylon Empire, the Akkadian Empire, etc. They would sometimes go on and on about their their um, worship of various deities, but from one culture to the next, the, the same deity would have completely different 
<laughs> approaches uh, to the worship, different accounts of the same story. You know, people will bring up uh, the, oh, you know, the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh that we find in the Babylonian records, almost identical to the flood. If you've actually read it, yeah, if you actually read it, it's like, no, quite a bit different from it. But there are, there's not just one Epic of Gilgamesh. There are many, 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 many regional versions of it, all kinds of expansions, deletions, etc. into it. Yes, and, and not even uh, limited to one continent. There's all kinds of ones in the, the Chinese also have a variation of it as well. So these, these you could say, murmurs, reverberations from the account of the flood, or you find them all over the world. They're in Australia. Uh, the natives of Australia also have their version of it. So, yes. Yes, very, very clever in uh, coming up with counterfeits. Uh, yes, Sean. Yeah, just my sister who's very pagan and all the different gods that she's familiar with. She talks about how exhausting he is. You got to consult with this god to consult with that god to hopefully intervene with this god's decision. If it's, I mean, all this confusion and I'm so glad we don't have a god of confusion. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the challenges that you have with the pantheon as you end up trying to play one deity against and with another. So, yeah. And one of the passages here that <laughs> we saw this passage of uh, in our account in Exodus 13 through 15, and you see the, the cry of the people out. So, hey, were there no graves in Egypt that you've led us out here with our back to the Red Sea, trapped us here? when the army of Mitzrayim is coming up against us. So in reflection with this, Psalm 23 really comes, really comes out as you see about the leading of the Lord out of the house of, of bondage and also through the sea. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. So when you think of a common psalm that we have of, of Psalm 23, that's one of the comforting aspects of it is the Lord's leading. That's when we end up in one place or another. And do we actually trust that the Lord is with us in that? Even in an area described there is the valley of the shadow of death you were it seems like death may be inevitable but the lord is there with us can we actually learn the perseverance to pray like daniel's four friends that like hey even if the lord kills us we will still trust in him because you're trusting in the creator of life and the creator of life can recreate life. That is one thing you see the, uh, the patriarch Job, he prayed for that about being brought back to life because he had all kinds of things thrown at him, his family, family <laughs> nearly wiped out, and everything taken away from him, him physically being ass assaulted with ailments and such in misery and yet the hope of a new life even from death which one of the things we'll take a look at here in first corinthians chapter 10 which is a reflection upon the crossing of the sea oh, i'm sorry before we go in here further larry go ahead please you know i'm thinking it's all that all well and good to have that tension of you might lose when you're playing a game 
But when you're thinking about your existence for eternity, you really want a sure thing. Yes. Yeah, you certainly want a sure thing. Now, as we take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first 13 verses, you know, some of the things that we see in there in this particular passage, like in the first five verses, it talks about, you know, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized. It's immersed into Moshe in the cloud and in the sea. So with this, you have the whole family is being immersed, being washed in the sea. What are they being washed from? You know, the, the practice of the mikveh or the washing was to what? When you see it, you encounter it in the Torah. Purified, to wash away. It's why it's talked about the picture of um, water, fresh water, or water that is alive, living water, meaning moving water. It comes in and then it goes out. It is not uh, just a stagnant pool where everything just collects. Whatever is washed off is washed away. Kind of reminds you about a picture that you have about your uh, sins, your uncleanness, that being taken away by the waters. Yes. And go ahead, please. But, but they walk through on dry ground. They so. walk through on dry ground. So in the sense of that they were baptized, they were immersed in the sea, what was it that was washed away? Egypt. That's what was washed away. Which, by no coincidence, is why you see Paul connects baptism and circumcision together. And why you see that's the picture that you see in like Joshua when they new generation, the re reborn Israel is there on the other side of the Arden. What do they do? They circumcise that reborn generation to remove the reproach of Egypt. That's a part of the old life. That generation died in the desert but the new generation going into the land that part of the reproach of egypt is taken away and you know continuing on they were baptized in the motion in the cloud and in the sea and they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking the from a spiritual rock which followed them the rock was the mashiach and, you see, as it continues, but nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. So, the generation traveling out of Mitzrayim, they saw all the plagues, traveled through the sea, they saw the army destroyed that was pursuing them, water from the rock, food from the sky, food that would just appear six days a week, twice as much on the sixth day, would carry it through the seventh day. And all of that, as is talked about there in Hebrews, they did not combine it with trust. They received all these things, saw all these things, but they did not see that the Lord was actually with them was actually the source of these things that could be trusted to actually fight their battles and win against seemingly overwhelming odds. So then, as it continues on, the lessons that come out, in this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 11, you see a lot of references to the past... <laughs> foibles of that first generation coming out you know do not be idolaters as some of them were as it was written they sat down to eat and drink and <laughs> stood up to play that's the golden calf references to that do not act immorally as some of them did and twenty-three thousand fell in one day again reference to the golden calf nor let us try the lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents and it talked about that in the book of Numbers as well. Nor grumble as some of them did 
and were destroyed by the destroyer. Again, <laughs> we talk about the destroying angel that went into Mitzrayim, that freed Israel, also showed up here with the grumbling, showed up amongst Israel. And you see, as it talks about, these things happen to them as an example, written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. But, so the lesson then for the next generation is, is that, well, we weren't as stupid as they were, as clueless as they were. You know, if we were there, boy, we would have seen the water and being divided and are going through it. We would have seen the manna showing up each day. We would have seen the water from the rock, and we wouldn't have been that dumb or that uh, untrustworthy. But you have this <laughs> admonition here in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, him who thinks he stands, take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will allow you, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So that way of escape if you were to just start first back with the, the context, the way of escape was you're going through the sea. Trust the one who opened the sea for you. Trust the one who led you through the sea. When you were there at the rock, trust the one who brought the water from the rock. Trust the one who gave you your daily bread. Trust the one who then later would take you into the land. So that when you're facing various sorts of things, we fast forward it now to us and to every generation thereafter, when we encounter these things, what do we do? Do we think we're on our own? We were freed into our new life, and you just get this nice little, uh, little badge saying, hey, I've been to Egypt and I survived, get the t-shirt and move on? Or is it that you actually have the one who took you out is now going with you so that you can survive up under anything that comes along? Uh, yes, go ahead, John. Yeah, that question and, and doubt, is God with us or not, uh, is a direct link to that, uh, be careful you think you stand. Because yes. if you got a moment, you're doubting, Another Elohim will jump on those thoughts, guaranteed it. Yep. So, yeah, he's with us, and uh, he always makes a way. If, we, if I force my focus on him, I put on the full armor, I got a chance. Yeah. Yeah, because when one of the key things we all face is that if we face some sort of major dest destruction of our sense of stability, Whatever that may be, our job, family members, illnesses, death, whatever into us, what do we have to fall back upon? That's one of the things of despair that we have in our generation, but has happened in other generations before us. If you have nothing to fall back upon, where do you go? And yes, that is a problem. People get so despondent that they think life is no longer worth living. Yes, Carrie. I was thinking when you listed out the events, like the you know the Red Sea and um, the the uh, bread from heaven, and the, I don't remember the third one, but there's one key um, element that is the same between all of those, and that is there was no way out with the visible eye. <laughs> yeah. There, there wasn't some wisdom that they could have cultivated from their life experience that would have shown them that this is how he was going to do it. It it was not something that they could physically know, Liddy, and he ups the trust. Yeah, that's something. Something is going to happen that we we don't we don't expect, indeed. And even in the in the midst of all of that, um, when we come to a point 
that indeed you may not have a way that opens up that we can see, do we actually trust that we ourselves are in the care of the creator of life and the one who promises to recreate life? The one who created everything that we have around us, created the sky and the earth and the waters and the animals and the creatures created us, gave us these fantastic minds that we can do fabulous things like build buildings like this and various types of technology, etc. That's the one who did all that can recreate life. That is the ultimate fallback. So thus you can see that when the Apostle Paul is talking about, hey, if all that you trust in is the resurrection, but the dead are not raised, and there is no resurrection, then what? Your trust is pointless. Your trust is in vain. So the one who can do all these things is the one that we fall back upon. Not about having to make sure that we dance the right dance or shake the right rattles at the right time, say the right incantation in the right order, in the right language, with the right pronunciation. No. It is the one who does these things and also has mercy upon us when we don't deserve any mercy whatsoever. Part of the act of confession is to say, hey, we deserve it. But yet, even in that sense, you say, I will forgive the inequities and remember them no more. So lastly, as we just reflect upon these passages here, we read in Luke 24 and saw the closing out of the crucifixion, but just rolling back, it a little bit into Luke 23, verses 33 through 49, where Yeshua was there on the cross, and he says to them in the midst of it, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, in Luke 23, 34, specifically. Now, you see in the account in the prophets, and you see the account in Yeshua's trial, when he tells those people who do know what's going on, who do know what they're doing to a certain degree, hey, you are going to see the Son of Man coming in his power. You will look upon the one whom you have pierced in this. But for those Roman soldiers that were carrying out orders, they didn't know what was going on. They were ordered to do these things. So it gives, goes back to something that Yeshua was saying, hey, to those who are given a little, little required. To those who are given much, much is required. Much is required for that. So for us, if our master here, Yeshua, can say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing in the midst of the most unbelievable uh, affront to the kingdom of God. So, golden calf, amazingly bad. Crucifixion, <laughs> that, that takes it, as they say, up to 11 in the amazing fronts against the kingdom of God. And yet, in the midst of that, you see Yeshua say, hey, forgive them. The ones that don't know what they're doing, Forgive them. Even to some whose eyes were open to say, hey, they saw what was going on and like, wait a minute, this is something different. This isn't just the normal criminals who we've crucified many before. This is something different. So lastly, as we close out these days of Matzot, these are days of the draining out, the purging out 
of malice and wickedness, of hypocrisy, of the things that bloat us up. And also, the things that are not something that um, move us away from being able to approach the kingdom of God. Because one of the pictures of unleavened bread is sincerity, truth, but also these are the offerings that go where? They approach towards the presence of God, the unleavened cakes. Those go in toward the presence of God. So one of the things that we should always pray for is the, the removal of these things that bloat us up, that fill us with malice and wickedness. And so that we can be brought back to that sort of thing, like in the garden, where we can be fully transparent before God and not be ashamed. Because when you had that moving away, when our first parents chose towards the tree of knowledge of good and bad, then there was something to hide. And they were ashamed. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.